Friends, let's turn our attention to the scriptures and pray together. Father, we thank you that we can be part of a church family that laughs together, that encourages each other, that talks about serious things, and that pursues growth and godliness together. We thank you that you do this work uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit by the Word of God. And as we turn our attention to the Word of God now, we ask for your help. Encourage us, challenge us, make it clear in our minds and compelling to our hearts, we pray. Amen. Well, for many of us, this was the first week of school. Kids are back in school, and as you think about uh, going back to school that first week, maybe through the eyes of your children or grandchildren, or maybe just thinking back to your own experiences, you remember those days when it's filled with questions and awe and wonder and fear and anxiety and excitement. And who are my friends going to be this year? And will they still remember me after a whole summer away? Or maybe I'm changing buildings into a new school this year. What is that going to look like? And, and of course, we know that in that dynamic, the teachers play such an important role, don't they? Teachers can make it or break it for kids in a lot of ways. They can help them, encourage them, and challenge them to grow. Or if they're negligent or difficult or particularly aggressive, can discourage them. Teachers have a unique role, a unique role in all spheres of life to both help people see what they're learning as it relates to them right now and to train them and give them skills for the future, for later. There's a dynamic. Teachers help people now and later. And that theme of now and later is one of the themes that we've pointed out here in the book of 2 Peter. I want to ask you to open a Bible with me uh, to the book of 2 Peter. It's found on page uh, 1018. And today we're going to look at chapter 2. Because what we've been seeing in 2 Peter over the last couple of weeks is that the Christian is to live a life that is focused on both the now, but also to have another field of view. To have a field of view for later. To live in a manner that understands, as compelled by the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself will return someday. And that there'll be great joy and great consequence on that day. Now and later. And the logic of the book to this point has been this. First part of chapter 1, Peter encourages Christians that they're supposed to believe certain things and those beliefs are supposed to compel how they live. Sort of what you know informs what you do. <laughs> and what you do confirms what you know. Last week in the second part of chapter 1, we saw Pastor Chris gave us an encouragement about how we can be sure of what we know about who God is and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And we can be sure because the word of the prophet has been more fully confirmed. Jesus has come, he was transfigured, God spoke, and now we have his very written word before us, which confirms these things. And so then it makes sense that in a dynamic where people are trying to see and to know and to experience God, they want to have confirmation, but at the same time, we're talking about spiritual realities. And when you talk about things that have some amount of vagueness to them or difficulty to them, there's an opportunity, an opportunity for false teachers to arise. And so today we have a very strict warning about false teachers 
And that's where we pick up in chapter 2. So please follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 2. This is what it says. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued the righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They kind of pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved to gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. Speechless donkeys spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. 
Peter challenges the Christians with a stern word of warning and judgment. And the first thing that we can take away from this is just very plainly that we are to be concerned about false teachers and false teaching. In the millions of pages of Christian literature, in the thousands of sermons you can access online, in the hundreds of Christian radio stations across the country, and even in the relationships that you have with people you know, I wonder how discerning you are about the teaching that you're receiving. I mean, my guess is that many of us evaluate a person's teaching on whether or not we like the message, or how that message might make us feel, the emotional or passionate component of it. Or even perhaps some of us might evaluate the teaching we receive based on the logic that is presented in a given topic. But in 2 Peter, we see and we're warned that we're supposed to be concerned with the source of teaching and the motives of the teachers. Very plainly, we're told, watch out for false teachers. Now, a false teacher is probably not someone who teaches false doctrine out of ignorance. Now, their teaching is indeed, or can potentially be wrong or even false, and very damaging, and we should be concerned about people who are teaching false doctrine out of ignorance. But false teachers, as is presented here and in other places in the scripture, are more likely people who know the truth of God, and yet they distort it for their own personal gain. Some false teachers know that they're distorting it for their own personal gain. Others believe their own lies and may not even fully comprehend that they're distorting God's truth, but the fruit bears out what is actually happening. And if you look at the text of 2 Peter, Peter warns them about these people throughout the whole chapter, but particularly in verses 1 through 3, he gives us a summary of the rest of the chapter. And in the warning, we see that it's for the present time and for the future. Look with me at verse 1. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people. This is in days gone by. Just as there will be false teachers among you. There will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies. False teacher or teaching is a constant danger for the Christian and for the local church. And so it's interesting, he devotes a whole chapter to it, and yet he doesn't give us a precise description of the false teaching that these teachers are presenting to the people. We know that in the book of 2 Peter that there are people who are challenging the idea that Jesus is coming again. And so that is probably an element of their false teaching. We also see in the summary of, of the chapter, verses 1 through 3, that this false teaching has in it some claims that have an element of sensuality to them, or sexuality. We see that these false teachers will exploit people with their false words for the sake of their own greed. We see that even though these false teachers are denying a final judgment, that God will ultimately judge them. 
And so we shouldn't fear. And so when you put all these things together that are kind of floating around, the idea that Jesus isn't coming back and isn't going to judge anybody, that there's an element of sensuality or sexuality or pleasure that we see in the text and that will be elaborated on later, that there's a deception or an exploitation that has to do with money or greed. The teaching could be something like this. I know the way for you to be happy in this life. Shed off the confines that are holding you back. Your fulfillment will come in your freedom, in your pursuit of sexual or material pleasures. And you can know that as you are pursuing these things that God is blessing you and pleased with you because after all, he gave us these things for our enjoyment. Don't be concerned with all this talk about a coming judgment. Instead, live with the pleasures that God has given you today. After all, he's a good God and he loves his children. Now that is a message that everyone wants to hear. That's a message well, that will draw a crowd and develop a following. That's the type of message that if delivered compellingly enough by the person that looks a certain way or has eloquent enough speech, that will sell millions of books. That's the type of message that will make the speaker himself very wealthy and a message that appeals to all people in all cultures and all times. And so Peter warns Keep guard against the false teachers now so that you can avoid their consequences later. I don't know if you've ever heard the story of a man named Mark Landis. It's a fascinating story of a man who was a master art forger. Mark Landis, for 30 years, forged world-class paintings and he made headlines for duping dozens of museums into accepting these fake paintings that he donated to them. He admits that he always had a bit of a mischievous streak and that as such, he carried on what was essentially the ruse of the art world for 30 years. He'd contact museums and he would often use aliases and dress like a Jesuit priest. And with his odd demeanor, and with the museum curators not completely knowing how to interact with a priest and his nearly encyclopedic knowledge of art history, he would play the part of an eclectic art collector very, very well. His skills in forging art are not questioned. His skill with a pencil or a paintbrush are undeniable. And often using a magnifying glass, Landis would study the print of an original piece of art. He'd meticulously engage with attention to detail and copy exactly what he saw, whether that's religious icons or impressionistic paintings or modern works of art. His recreation in the style of the old world masters was astonishing. And so were his tools. As part of the ruse, he would include the use of magic markers, pens, and even frames from Walmart. 
raw materials that proper forgers might never use. But more than 45 museums could not tell the difference. Trained art curators that were trained to know what was true and what was fake could not tell the difference between Landis's copies and original works. Not only were his fakes convincing to them, but he also knew exactly what to say when he met with them at the museum. As one museum director explained, Landis would imply that he had more paintings that he might be willing to donate. And a possible endowment from the family's estate was on the way. He would later go on to admit, the museum director says he knew right where to hit us, our soft spot, art and money. Friends, false teachers know the soft spots. They know to mix just enough truth with our own personal desire so that it sounds reasonable to us. And in this introduction, we see very plainly, keep guard against these false teachers now so that you can avoid their consequences later. Before we talk about those consequences, let's flesh out the picture of what some of these false teachers might look like. Chapter 2 is a very long and, and pretty complicated chapter in its structure. And so I think it might be helpful to pull out a couple of observations for us by way of the profile of a false teacher so that we can be aware and recognize when one may be in our midst. The first thing that we see as a profile of the false teacher is a despise for legitimate spiritual authority. Look with me at verse 10. In verses 4 through 10, he's talking about judgment on the false teachers and how that judgment is coming. And he says in verse 10, especially to those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And then he describes this, this, this despising authority. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting description of a struggle with authority. And what Peter is describing here is really two mirroring situations, one in heaven and one on earth. On earth, you have the false teachers who are ignorant, but are blaspheming the glorious ones. Well, who are the glorious ones? Jude, Jude verse 8 is a parallel passage to this. The glorious ones mentioned there, this specific word generally refers to angels. Now, that might sound weird to us. We don't talk about angels glorifying them or blaspheming them all that much today. But in Jewish culture, angels were talked about in much greater context and higher esteem. In fact, when you think about their role in the Bible, angels were looked at as ones who were either delivering prophecy or delivering the law. And just scan biblical history a little bit and you see, okay, there's angels who come to announce the things of God, good news, or come to announce judgment upon God's people. They're people of, or beings of higher power 
because of their access to God himself. And they play an important role. And these false teachers are slandering the angels for their own personal gain. Now, conversely, the scene in heaven is one in which the angels are before the throne of God. If anybody can look down on earth other than God himself and say, hey, look at, this, look at the humans down there who keep sinning. <laughs> you should judge them. And yet the angels refuse to do that. They are sinless ones, the angels themselves. And the humans are sinful, and yet they do not, in the same way, proclaim judgment upon them. And so, what Peter's trying to say here is that this type of, this is just a type or an example of a person or people that struggle with spiritual authority. I mean, if they will go so far to slander angels who have never sinned, then of course they're going to slander righteous rulers in their very own midst. They have a problem with authority. They're self-willed in their nature, and they want to advance their own cause. Now, spiritual authority. We could talk for a long time about that, but just to know very quickly and simply, God has placed every Christian under spiritual authority, whether that's in your home, in your church, in the world, and in the context of eternity. And this is good for the Christian. It's good for us. And the false teachers who are self-willed, therefore, despise this type of authority. What's another part of a false teacher? Another part of the profile? we would see is that they follow desires of the sinful nature. Look with me at verse 13. Verses 13 through 16 say that they, in the middle of the verse, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. Now Peter accused them of this passion or pleasure to revel. The word for pleasure there is the word hedon, which is where we get the idea of hedonism. You know what hedonism is? Hedonism is not just taking simple pleasures in life, but hedonism is the ongoing pursuit of pleasure or the indulgence of the appetite as sort of the agenda of your life. And he's warning them against the practice of hedonism, when you make pleasure the most important thing. But friends, if we could think of a word to describe Western culture today, <laughs> is there a better word to describe our culture than hedonism? The constant pursuit of pleasure, even at great cost to everything else around us? And yet, what we see is that this pursuit of pleasure only seems to increase, but it never truly satisfies. Think about your own life. The food that you used to enjoy no longer pleases you. And so, what we do is that we seek to find more elaborate and expensive meals. The things that used to entertain us now seem dated or old-fashioned, and so we need to find new things. We need to find bigger TVs, more stations, a Netflix account on top, a Spotify premium account on top of that. Multiple vacations a year, all while browsing the internet along the way. How about 
in the realm of sex. The text talks about sexuality and sensuality. The sex that satisfies us with our spouse is no longer enough in this present culture. At least they would have us to believe that. And so we look for ways to expand, to extend, to create more erotic experiences, whether it's the use of pornography or fantasy or homosexual practice or extramarital affairs, all in an attempt to bring pleasure and passion and reveling back, something that we used to feel and to have. Pleasure as a pursuit of life is something that you could chase forever, but never actually achieve it. It's always just over the horizon. It's always just out of reach. I really enjoy the poetry of one of the most famous poets in the nation of Scotland, a man named Robert Burns. And on the topic of pleasure and hedonism, in four simple lines, he hits the nail on the head as he says this. He says, but pleasures are like poppy spread. You seize the flower, its bloom is shed. Or like the snow falls in the river, a moment white, and then melts forever. Now, of course, pleasure in and of itself is not a bad thing. God gives us wonderful gifts to enjoy. But the constant pursuit of pleasure as the agenda of life, or hedonism, is what is so damaging to the Christian because it's never enough. And it is also a marker or a sign of false teachers. And so keep guard against those false teachers now, Peter says, so that you do not have to have their consequences later. The third thing that we see about these false teachers is that they are deceptive. Just consider it with me, I'll move quickly. Verse 1 tells us that these teachers are deceptive in that they secretly bring destructive heresies. Verse 13 tells us that there are blots and blemishes in their deceptions. And this, of course, is the opposite of what he tells Christians to be. Chapter 3, where he tells them to be without spot or blemish in verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 2, however, tells us that these people entice unsteady souls. Verses 18 or 19, they tell us that the ones who are at greatest risk from this deception are those who are already struggling just to barely escape from their sin. And part of the idea that is, that is, that is woven throughout the deception of false teachers is the idea of freedom. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says that they, the false teachers, promise them freedom. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Now, at this point, we have to pause. If part of the deception is freedom, we must pause and ask ourselves what true freedom really is, particularly as opposed to the false notion of freedom that they're presenting. Because it's often the deception of freedom that gets to or allows us permission for the sinful desires of our hearts to come to the forefront of our actions. Now, we said a moment ago that, 
that the teaching could be something like this, right? That the false teaching could be something like a person pr promoting the idea that let me show you the way to happiness in this life. Throw off the confines of life. Your fulfillment will come in your freedom and therefore pursue the things that are sexually gratifying to you and materially gratifying to you. And know that as you do these things, God, the giver of good gifts, is pleased with you as you do them. Don't pay attention to all this talk about a coming judgment. Enjoy the passions or pleasures of life that God has given to you right now. He's a loving God. What's the message of that teaching? The message is, you are free. You're free to do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want. Freedom can be yours. But does the lack of constraint actually lead us to true freedom? After all, there are a lot of movements in our culture and just in the recent history of the United States that have been in the name of freedom, but I don't think have led to any greater level of freedom. Let's take, for example, the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, the message of sexual freedom, that no longer are men just the ones that can go from place to place with woman to woman, but women can do that too. And actually, sex is such a great thing that it doesn't need to be in the confines of meaningful relationship or marriage but that we are free to be expressive in our sexual relationships. But with that came the consequences of relational dysfunction, sexually transmitted diseases spreading rampantly through the culture, issues of self-worth, relational distortion as people try to navigate now the difference between sexual partners casually and meaningful relationships otherwise. Doesn't sound a lot like freedom to me. <laughs> or how about the growing practice of abortion, which is a practice in the name of freedom? I mean, ladies, you are free over your own bodies to do what you want without anybody to look at you or to point a finger otherwise. But with that comes lasting guilt, studies have shown again and again and again, emotional scars and physical difficulty. That doesn't sound a lot like freedom to me. Or how about the creation of the last 30 years in the United States of America called no-fault divorce? That you can be free to walk away from a commitment to a person that you made a lifelong commitment, but for whatever reason, you can be free just to walk away. And nobody will say it's your fault. And there'll be no litigation to say it's your fault. You can be free to pursue love, whatever that means, in your own terms, in your own ways. But what about the consequences of broken families, of financial destruction, of a whole generation of children that have no idea what a healthy family is supposed to look like and then perpetuate that to the next generation after them? Now that doesn't sound a lot like freedom to me. We could give many more examples. How about the prol proliferation of pornography? The huge... Uh, 
notion that sexual freedom can now be digitized. And yet, at the very same time, the issues of self-worth and sexual deviancy among those who are photographed or filmed, and the issues of addiction and broken relationships and sexual dysfunction, and even broken marriages among those who regularly consume pornography. And now it's so readily available that I read just an article the other day, a new study that said children as young as 10, 10% 10 of them are accessing pornography online. That doesn't sound like freedom. We could talk about the legalization of gay marriage and the consequences. We could talk about the legalization of marijuana and its consequences. All the movements of culture that proclaim you are free. And the list goes on. But part of the deception of offering freedom is that this leads us to really no freedom at all. And as theologian Richard John Niehaus once said, freedom standing by itself inevitably leads to license. And license, which is unbridled freedom, actually becomes the enemy of freedom. Keep guard against the false teachers now so that you can avoid their consequences later. What are those consequences? Well, this passage is littered with proclamations of destruction. And if you went through later this afternoon or tomorrow and just wrote down all of the verses that meant that mentioned something about judgment or destruction, it would be informative to you. I think by way of summary, and for the sake of time, I will look at the final judgment of false teachers just in verses 4 to 10. Verses 4 to 10, Peter seems to recognize the dynamic that's happening that people are saying, well, these people are teaching false things but nothing's happening to them. They're actually getting rich. They're actually leading people astray. They're actually engaged in the very sensuality that they want to have. Why should we stand up against them? They seem to be fine. They have the best of both worlds. To which Peter encourages them that this will not always be the case. And he does so through a series of examples. That's one big, long, run sentence that goes like this. If God judged the angels who sinned and held them in hell until the final judgment. And if God flooded the whole world because of its wickedness, but preserved for him the righteous one, Noah, and his family. And if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by condemning them to an extinction because of their sin and as an example for the ungodly, while all the while preserving Lot, who was righteous among them. If God judged and judged and judged, but he also preserved the righteous one, then, know for sure, Christian, God knows how to preserve the righteous while holding the wicked for their ultimate judgment. Keep guard against the false teachers now so that you can avoid their consequences later. And so what do you do with this? What do you do with a passage like this in your own life? Here's four quick application points to conclude. Number one, Christians stay alert on the types of influences in your life. One of the most discouraging things from a pastor to see for people in his church are the mixture of messages that they receive through good teaching and false teaching. And there's a lot of best-selling Christian books that are blatant false teaching. 
And so stay alert to the types of influences in your life. Perhaps the greatest opportunity for false teachers in our time is that we live in such a time where firm stances on right and wrong are not taken or where truth and falsehood are not uh, not clearly defined, but yet there's this sort of seemingly spectrum of gray. But no, you need to know that false teaching is the mixture of partial truth very often mixed with error. Partial truth, it sounds clear enough to be true, and it's mixed with error, and this creates a cocktail of false teaching. Number two, don't fall prey to the same temptations that are mentioned in the lifestyle choices of the false teachers here. Instead, grow in the qualities mentioned in chapter one. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. These qualities keep you from becoming unfruitful. And in a sense, they guard you against falling prey to bad temptations. And what were they? Faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. These things will guard your affections toward the lifestyle of the false teacher. Thirdly, understand and live in such a manner that awaits the return of Jesus and the final judgment. Two fields of view, now and later. And that the great news of the gospel is that those who are found to have their faith in Jesus, the righteous ones like Noah and Lot after him, God preserves in the midst of an environment that is continuing to degenerate. Number four, keep growing in learning your Bible. Even to your dying day. It sounds trite. Last week, Pastor Chris taught us that the voice of the prophets was more fully confirmed this is the scriptures. Beyond that, reading your Bible nourishes you. It helps you to grow. It comforts you as you hear the voice of God, but it also protects you. It protects you to your dying day. The best antidote for false teaching is to know what good teaching actually is. To cling to Jesus and his word. And so I close with this quotation, 200 years old approximately, from Bishop J.C. Ryle that exhorts us on the importance of Bible reading. This is what he says. He says that you live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies are around you on every side. Your own heart is deceitful. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. And above all false doctrine and false teachers of every kind abound. This is your great danger. Be, to be safe, you must be well armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store in your mind with Holy Scripture. This is to be well armed. Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written word of God. Read your Bible regularly. Become familiar with your Bible. Neglect your Bible and nothing I know of can prevent you from error if a plausible advocate of false teaching shall happen to meet you. 
Make it a rule to believe nothing except as it can be proved from the scripture. The Bible alone is infallible. Do you really use your Bible as much as you ought? There are many today who believe the Bible, yet read it very little. Does your conscience tell you that you are one of those persons? If so, you are a man who is likely to be carried away by some false teacher for a time. It will not surprise me if I hear that one of these clever, eloquent men who can make a convincing presentation is leading you into error. You are in need of ballast, of truth. No wonder if you are tossed to and fro like a cork on the waves. All of these are uncomfortable situations. I want you to escape them all. Take the advice I offer you today. Do not merely read your Bible a little, but read it a great deal. Remember your many enemies. Be armed. Watch out for the false teachers now so you can avoid their consequences later. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for wisdom and insight into what nourishes us. We pray for good food, not for junk food. We ask, Lord, that you would allow us to cling to the person of Jesus because the gospel of forgiveness of sins is of great hope to us, even greater hope than the passions or pleasures of this world, that you would help us to grow in the characteristics of a Christian as found in 1 Peter chapter 1, that you would give us even greater affection for your word, that we would know it, that we would understand it, that it would become a part of us. And that as a result, you would continue to show yourself regularly, truly, faithfully, and gloriously. We pray for the sake of the glory of your Son.